The episode of the Starbase Indie Podcast you're about to hear was recorded live at Starbase Indie 2022. Welcome to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where in this session we're going to talk about writing the fantastic. So animated worlds and comic books give writers an opportunity to do all sorts of fantastical things without having to worry about the budget, but they also present some unique and interesting challenges. So we're talking today with some folks who do this sort of thing a lot and for a living, and I'm going to ask you some questions, but let's start by having you introduce yourselves. Well, my name is uh, Demetrius Witherspoon, and uh, I live here in uh, Indianapolis, and uh, I'm a, a writer and a director and creator of, uh, of the Smurge Universe franchise. And uh, I'm Aaron Waltke, or Aaron J. Waltke, if you like it. Um, I'm a writer and executive producer. I've worked on all kinds of fantasy and science fiction, uh, most notably uh, Guillermo del Toro's Aylesworth series on Netflix, uh, you know, Troll Hunters and Wizards, and then uh, I'm currently the co-executive producer and uh, co-head writer of Star Trek Prodigy on Paramount Plus and Nickelodeon. That one might must that for around these parts. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> I had to name check Guillermo too, because he's yes. the interesting fellow. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, let, so what's the most fantastical thing you have written for your animated characters to do on screen, and why do I think his name might come up again? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, do you mind if I go first? Mm -hmm. no. uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a hard question to answer because I feel like everything I write to a certain degree has sort of a high concept or oddness to it because it, uh, that's what I think the value of fantasy and science fiction is, is being able to kind of process stories through a larger-than-life metaphor of some sort. Um, and so everything tends to have some sort of skew <laughs> that that is probably something you couldn't do easily for at all in, in a, a normal story. Uh, but, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've written all kinds of sort of outrageous scenarios. There was one episode of Troll Hunters, I remember, where that, you know, that there's, uh, they're looking for some sort of, uh, ancient artifact in, in a, a vault, and it turns out the vault was a giant, uh, troll the size of a mountain, and they had to go inside the, the troll, uh, and rescue the, this uh, sort of magical relic before it was destroyed by his lava innards. <laughs> so, mm. That's something that might be a little difficult to do with live action. Um, but even, you know, uh, like, for instance, uh, Star Trek Prodigy, I had an episode that just came out. Uh, I've had a couple episodes that have come out that involve things that are difficult to do in live action. Like I had, uh, I wrote an episode called Kobayashi that... Um, you know, in which one of our characters, Dal, um, it activates the Kobayashi Maru training simulator at, on the holodeck, and he just asks the computer for some of the best you got as far as the, the characters that could populate the bridge crew, and he he act, accidentally summons, you know, some of the great characters from across all of Star Trek. Obviously, that would be almost impossible to do on Star Trek. They, I remember they threatened to do it before years and years, supposedly if they got another uh, movie after Nemesis, for instance, mm -hmm. I believe they were batting around an idea that it would be sort of like the Avengers of Star Trek and, you know, all of time would be threatened and they'd go across and pick up, you know, 
Captain Janeway and you know, mm. Cap Spock, and then mm. they pull them all together to assemble the ultimate Star Trek crew. Uh, but obviously that didn't happen, almost certainly besides the fact that Nemesis didn't do well in the theaters, was logistics. It's incredibly difficult to do. I think they tried to do something similar Generations, where the original plot was going to be the, the TOS bridge crew versus um, versus the, you know, the TNG bridge crew, but because trying to get the contracts together for that many people and, and navigate that many characters, it was hard to do in live action. But in voiceover, as Kate Mulgrew has played out, it's so much freeing, it's so much more freeing and liberating and relatively easy that you could, it's a less of a commitment and you have a little bit more flexibility that way. I, uh, I have a funny story about that that I want to share. I was talking to Paul Aller, who was going to be here, but has uh, come down with something. And I told him that I was bringing you in for this year's show. And they said, oh, I hope that's not the writer I had the Twitter fight with about the, about Odo being the best security person of all time. Click, 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 click. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I never have a Twitter name. And, and, and it's always, I, for, for me, this is a slight digression, but like for me, I... Star Trek has always been about lively debates. Like that is that is the love language of a Star Trek fan because it's how you say this is how much I know about Star Trek. <laughs> and what's lovely and perhaps ironic about Star Trek is because the, there is so much lore across fifty six years of of television, films, etc. You know, and inevitably there's going to be things that contradict each other and so it becomes very much a rules lawyering situation where you say well it could be this but it contradicts that unless we did this and then it becomes this sort of like i i always picture it like a game of badminton you know you just say well this doesn't work because of this unless you do this <laughs> and then that's very much an analog for a writer's room too so I like even with people like oh I'm so sorry for arguing with you on Twitter. Like arguing, we were just <laughs> doing the Ur Star Trek fandom thing, yeah. just, like talking about fan stuff. Like and mm -hmm. you know it was it, yeah it, it, I I love that stuff. So I have no offense taken. Paul. Yeah, and 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 neither did, does he. It really mean it was a fight. No, uh, but I, they they were very. Uh, it was just funny. Like oh I do know this person on Twitter and. <laughs> No, it's, it was like, and specifically for that that episode in particular, I, I knew putting Odo in there was going to generate that question. But if you listen very carefully, he says, give me the best you got, not the best Starfleet officers you've got. Mm. And, you know, Odo has served on many Star Trek bridges. This is like, you know, he fought in the Dominion or arguably ended the Dominion War. Uh, I would say, based on my mission, Sorry, I could go on about this. Yeah. <laughs> He's a fantastic security officer. You didn't put it that way. And, and I agree. And I want to say that is one of my favorite episodes of Progeny. I, I like when, uh, you know, Spock shows up. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> Susan, so, okay yeah. So uh, I really enjoyed that. It was, it was really neat. So. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a complicated episode to put together, as you can imagine. But uh, uh, I, I, I and I worked a lot of late, long hours. I think my wife t tweeted like, you know, if if you question his dedication, I've had to listen to him watching old Star Trek episodes every night for the last three months, mm. pulling these <laughs> clips. Mm. Uh, so you know, it's it very much is a labor of love. Well, then, uh, yeah, Renee had passed by the time we shot that. Yeah, it was it was actually really unfortunate. Um, you know, not not to get uh, 
sort of modeled for a second, but I, you know, I, I had written dialogue for Renee and, um, you know, just to give you an idea of the timelines, this, this was before he had passed away. And then I, I didn't realize how, how sick he was. Um, and, uh, yeah. So then when suddenly he passed away, we we're in the process of like reaching out to his people and it, it was really, really hard, but ultimately we were like, well, we were already contemplating like not recasting Leonard Nimoy and we're like, it felt odd to just suddenly change his character to somebody else or recast him, you know, because the whole point was to celebrate his character. And I, you know, hopefully hear a little bit of his artistry and encourage new and young audiences to go, oh, but where did this character come from? And then go out and seek out his performances in Deep Space Nine and I suppose uh, the Undiscovered Country. But, uh, but um, yeah, so that was... It was it was a challenge, and then uh, we also had read lines for uh, Nichelle Nichols, and d didn't realize how ill she was, and it was sort of like this. So it became this sort of task that got more and more complicated, and that but it just kind of hardened my resolve, I guess. You're like, I'm gonna make this work, and thankfully, you know, it seems like a lot of the Star Trek fans out there acknowledged and saw what we were trying to do, and you know, we. As far as I know, we certainly went out to everybody, got permission from them or their estates, and it was, and, uh, you know, I was the one that kind of insisted we put the title card at the end because it, you know, that was sort of, because they did inspire us to go boldly. Those performances, those characters, I think they're eternal, and this was very much meant to say, like, hey, let, let's acknowledge where we came from as we kind of follow the new generation into the next uh, sort of phase of Star Trek. So that was that was sort of the thinking behind it. Yeah, that's very cool. Okay, Demetrius, back to the the question we started from: What is the most fantastical thing you have had your animated or comic book characters do? Um, you know, coming from film first, doing uh, sci-fi, uh, that's a challenge in itself with visual effects and um, you know practical versus uh, visual effects and things like that. And so when it came to the uh, comics and animation, you could do a whole lot more. Um, and it's a little bit freer uh, to, you know, blow up a whole world or uh, go through a time warp or, you know, have these monsters do these crazy things. Um, so I've, I've found it a little bit more, uh, <laughs> you can breathe a little bit easier instead of, Dressing up a UFC fighter, seven foot UFC fighter in a motion caption suit. And we're trying to do this out in the woods in Morovia, Indiana. And uh, so from head to toe, he was in a motion capture suit with little dots all over him because we was going to transpose a creature over top of him and uh, doing this huge big fight scene with him. So uh, that was challenging for live action. But for comic books, it's a lot easier. You just kind of give your thoughts and plans uh, to the artists, and I also kind of see what they bring to the table, too, as a collaboration. So when you are working with artists and doing that collaboration, what techniques do you use to make sure that the picture that's in your head ends up being the picture people see on screen? Well, uh, for me... Um, well, for comics, 
I just detail it out as much as possible. And I've been fortunate to work with some very uh, brilliant artists uh, over in the Philippines, Albert De La Cruz, and also in Venezuela. So uh, as I describe it as much as possible, we've had a good relationship. They bring back uh, visuals that are like stunning, you know, and uh, before they even color it, uh, you're able to see it. And if there's any tweaks, and I've been fortunate to work with them uh, closely, uh, there's not many changes I have to make. They get it. They understand the story world. And I also leave room for them to bring their flavor, their, uh, you know, the artistic ability, because why, why pay them if they're not going to bring some of their uh, artistic ability? So then that way they feel part of the universe also. Um, and so, um, so that's with the comic books and then with uh, film, you know, it's, it's the same way. Uh, you try to give them the best description and they, uh, for visual effects, They'll send, you know, we have storyboards, but then when visual effects come, they just give you a kind of a rough outline, uh, a, a previs of it, the way it's kind of going. And you're like, well, tweak this and turn this back a little bit. But, um, but yeah, the changes are made and then we go to work. Totally agree with that. Even at animation, it's very, a, a very collaborative um, medium, as you'd imagine. But uh, uh, I totally agree with, with Demetrius in that it's, it's like, um, why paint these artists if you're, if you're not going to give them a little bit of chance to show off? Mm -hmm. But you always, I think the, the key, especially with show running or being a comic creator or whatever, it seems to me is like you have to give them the sandbox to play in. So, mm -hmm. you know, you give, give them a target to hit so that way they, they know where the lines are, and then they can go crazy. And sometimes if they color a little outside the lines, it might be really interesting. You're like, oh, actually lean into that. That's a better idea. Yeah. Yeah. But but give them at least something so that way they're not totally off the mark. Um, you know, sometimes on Tales of Arcadia, we would just say like, oh, it's it's like a uh, a magical artifact. Like, the, 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 for instance, Jim had a magical amulet. And usually when you think of an amulet, it's like just a, a gemstone on a pendant or something. Mm. But uh, Guillermo had this very specific vision. It was like, I want it to be like an astrolabe, you know, which is an old sort of uh, the measuring device they use to kind of measure the stars and constellations and such. And so they were, they were able to pull up those visual references uh, and then kind of work from there. Um, you know, in Star Trek, it's kind of interesting because anytime we do reference something, <laughs> there's... Uh, like an 85% chance it already exists in some form already. And mm -hmm. you could, and so it's often fallen to me, but we also have a really great, you know, um, art and design team who can just call up, you know, like, well, what, ha what does a console look like in the 23rd century? What's it look like in the 24th century? What's it look like on this particular ship class? Um, and then we have the, the, the doubly interesting task of like, okay, well, our show is set. Uh, you know, six to 10 to 20 years after a lot of the Berman era stuff. But then we have a little bit of design language in Picard, which is set 15 years after us. So then our artists have to find some way to bridge the gap between those two, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, design languages. And it's actually very, been pretty fun to see sometimes because, for instance, uh, 
spoiler alert, uh, you know, we have Romulan show up in the latest episode of Star Trek Prodigy, which just aired this week. Nice. And we had this really interesting sort of task of like bridging the gap between the Romulans we've seen in TNG and, and, uh, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager to a certain extent and the rot and I guess Nemesis. And then uh, the, the Romulans that we see show up, you know, uh, with the Tal Shiar or the Zach Vash and such, you know, the, and so we were like, well, what's the in-between? Because they are very different in some ways. And, uh, you know, I, uh, kudos to our design team led by, um, you know, our, our art director and also our supervisor director, Vinny Bond. They found something that the fans seem to really like. I've, I've been, I've been kind of listening to the podcast and, peeking around and it seems like Romulan fans really dig what we did but that was purely because we gave them this sort of sandbox and saying find a way that that feels like an organic middle evolutionary step of that design yeah I, I i find that uh because i have the live action and so that that story world is built it makes it uh, a lot easier for when i do hand it off to the artists for the comics and the animation uh everything's there and so um, they have that reference point where they can kind of go back and they might tweak a few things. But, uh, you know, I've been uh, blessed to be able to have the ships and the weapons and everything like that. So they don't have to re reimagine anything uh, too much. It's, it, it's there. And so it kind of keeps the uh, continuity uh, through the universe um, uh, sound. Yeah, you guys have slightly different challenges, I think, because, Demetrius, you're sort of building that continuity as you go, whereas, Aaron, you're working with 50-plus years of variety of continuity. So, um, and, and you've done some other things where you're building it as you go as well. So how is that different? I would say the, the biggest thing is, you know, where possible... Don't completely just ignore what's already out there. I think that's a that's an important aspect. I think of figure out design layers, but but the other side of that coin is I don't think you sh you need to like sort of adhere without any adjustments to what's already been seen because a big part of Star Trek is new ships, new technology, and if it's only just stuck in like twenty three seventy one, I don't think any that's you're missing a whole exciting part of Star Trek is like the the chance to see these new things like that that's uh because uh, you, you have to remember the federation is a uh is uh, made up of trillion uh, trillions of scientists spread across you know 150 plus planets you know inevitably technology is going to move forward but it just giving it sort of at least a plausibility of like, oh, of course that, you know, it, they already had industrial replicators on Deep Space Nine that could do large scale things. And obviously losing shuttles is a problem. Why wouldn't, considering we have technology today that allows people to build boats from 3D printers and stuff, why wouldn't they be able to do simple shuttlecraft with maybe some of the more complex designs could just be beamed in or attached to it? Hmm. Um, you know, that's that's kind of the... I guess the balancing act that you always have to do of like what comes before versus, you know, pushing the football forward a little bit of just like, cause you, for me, I was always excited to see a new shuttlecraft or a new, a new ship or ship design, you know, otherwise we never have the ships. So there'd be a lot of podcasts that are out of business. That have been. <laughs> we don't want any of that. And then podcasts going out of business. That's no good. Um, so, how do you 
balance this need for, you know, it has to be feel grounded in reality to us, you know, sad little earthlings who are living here in the start of the 22nd century. Um, and versus it needs to feel alien and not like anything we have here. How do you make that that balance? Yeah. Do you want to speak to that? Or? Well, uh, for me, um, you know, I started out with this concept of uh, another world and this uh, lady getting thrown into a multi-universe. But it, it started with uh, actually based on this uh, panhandler, this lady that would ask for money uh, every day on the main road as I'm going to work. Now, you know, I would help out when I could, but the thing was is what it took for her to be in that situation. And what if she was thrown into a situation where she had to uh, not only just come out physically stronger, but uh, mentally stronger to deal with the pressures of, uh, you know, a galactic world and uh, her child been missing. So uh, that's kind of where I, I built everything on top of. So to have that human story and then you throw on all the icing and the sci-fi and everything like that, but have that that um, relatability in some kind of way, a mother and daughter relationship, uh, that human um, factor, I think that comes into uh, play with a story. I mean, that's a really excellent point that in terms of grounding and, and helping navigate the, the sort of outlandish worlds, you, you really do have to put character first because I think that's ultimately going to be your sort of gateway into whatever this universe is or this new technology or this strange new civilization is have a character's sort of relationship to that new information or new world or, or new technology be grounded in some sort of personal character arc that uh, that hopefully will speak to a more universal truth about humanity even if, when you're dealing with non-humans <laughs> um and you know i i th yeah I, I think that that's always been our approach on on the shows that i've worked on prodigy included is like you know the the the, the fantastical elements and the science fiction elements are, are always cool but we always try to think a bit of uh of we figure out what the character's overarching arc is for the season or, or these five episodes, or even within the episode. And then we were like, well, what interesting science fiction concepts kind of could marry with that? And they could inform each other and speak to each other uh, and not just have it exclusively be just a logic puzzle of, of, oh, here's a strange new thing. Here's the technology. Here's how it works. Here's how it goes awry. Here's how we fix it. That's, that's always going to be in there probably to a certain degree. But I think to elevate it a little bit and make it more personal and relevant is the that that's where the sort of alchemy comes in uh, as far as like finding that science fiction grounding uh you know i think everybody in the writer's room is always fascinated with the the limits of what our current technology is and you know then we talk we have an excellent science advisor or that i has been here several times dr Eric mcdonald so we will sometimes talk with her and you know, I, on occasion, we'll also talk with Dr. Muhammad Moore, which I think is also a big nerd sober, I guess, yeah. Um, he was a big help on this latest episode, actually. But thankfully, just to just, we'll just kind of to speak to it, though, um, you know, the latest episode we have, without getting into too many spoilers, deals with uh, sort of genetics and, 
and specifically like epigenetics, sort of hybrid speciation, and how, how you can physically change an individual, which obviously has been done many times in Star Trek, but to varying levels of success of scientific plausibility. Sure, sure. Um, and, you know, I, I'm fascinated by that stuff, you know, CRISPR editing and, and uh, you know, epigenetics specifically, which is a field which only has really kind of come into its own in the last 30-ish years, I think, of, of uh, sorry, I'm getting into weeks. The science you think. <laughs> but like, you know, uh, like, for, like, you know, Lamarckian evolution was this sort of like cast aside idea that, that it, like a giraffe could stretch out its neck to try to eat an apple or something. Then, then its neck would remain a little bit longer, and then its offspring would inherit that slightly longer neck. Mm. But now epigenetics is this new field. It's like, oh, actually, there are certain genetic switches that can be turned on by environmental factors and, you know, can permanently change an individual, and that could be passed on to the next generation. So that was a really fascinating scientific concept to me yeah. and, and to the writer's room. And, you know, so we tried our best to kind of put that in there uh, while also pulling from some of the stuff we've already seen in Star Trek episodes, like uh, what was it, Genesis or episodes <laughs> of TNG, and, and obviously there's plenty of episodes where they they change their species and stuff uh, for spy missions and whatnot. And then, um, but then, but then talking to Doctor uh, Newer and just finding those those little other elements of just like rapid cell division, and they're like this is how it could actually happen over the course of a day, and then. To, uh, you know, it's it, it's fun and fascinating to kind of extrapolate out. Okay, well, this is where we're headed. What could possibly uh, happen in forty hundred years? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, totally fascinating because uh, when you're able to have that kind of uh, other resource, uh, scientific resource, that, that expands your mind. I was sitting next to the uh, Arthur that. Uh, wrote about the parasites that get into humans, and then they've yeah done the study of how that affects uh, human behavior. Is it, and they've studied that how it has. And I was like, my mind was just like, oh my god, I could write this, I could do this. And so uh, having that grounded, um, um, you know, information and studies. Uh, that man that opens up whole new worlds for writers, uh, sci- uh, scientific writers, and and just writers in general. So uh, I love that aspect of uh, science fiction. So, uh, how did you each get started in writing, and what drew you to both science fiction and also that animated piece where you're where you're working even sort of more without guide rails because it doesn't cost any more for the alien to not deal with gravity than it would in, in practical effects. Well, uh, for me, um, I, uh, I did a little writing in high school, but um, it wasn't until uh, later that I really started uh, writing um, uh, sci-fi and what inspired me you know of course star wars and stargate and uh, farscape and all those sci-fi shows you know buck rogers let's you know, come on Battlestar galactica uh all of that uh inspired me uh as a kid and so uh once technology got to the point where you can have it right there in your hands you got the internet you got film you know 
and it's like, let's go out and, and make this, you know? And I didn't know anything about, uh, for me, I had to learn how to build story worlds and things like that. But all I knew was George Lucas, let's go out and make a sci-fi film. And so that's, that's what we did. But as I got deeper in it and wanted to get better, I started to learn how to build these story worlds and, and it's been awesome to bring it to, um, animation, uh, inspiring others. Uh, my first animated film that's won awards over in India and things like that. Actually, I helped produce because it was an artist at one of my uh, conventions I was at. She was inspired by what I did. And so she created an animated pilot uh, off my characters and I got behind it and I helped edit it because she had just started, just started, never did it before. And uh, her computer was so old, it couldn't even keep up with what she was doing. So I said, send me every little bit of clip that you get. And I put it all together, had the actors do their parts, and uh, we, we sent it out to film festivals, and we start getting best animation, best director uh, from it. So uh, it, it's been fun to build those worlds and see it in an animated state because, hey, I grew up on Bugs Bunny and uh, all those other animations and, and Star Trek for sure. Uh, their animated series. So this, to see my characters in that realm uh, is uh, it's is very honoring and uh, humbling. Yeah, I mean my my origin story, such as it is, pretty similar to yours. Yeah, like I I I grew up, um, you know, kind of splitting my time. <clears throat> excuse me, between uh, Greenwood and Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, future birthplace of Catherine Janeway. And so, so she was always sort of, uh, I guess, uh, a shadow <laughs> in my life and a very long one at that, uh, you know, because I, I was a child in the 80s, but certainly like, sort of came of age in the early 90s as Voyager was starting up. And, um, you know, I, I, I literally grew up between two cornfields, you know, like my neighborhood was right off of 37. There was a cornfield. That, uh, that we hung out in, and then there was a cornfield on the other side. And, the, you know, in the early 90s, the infrastructure wasn't quite there. There wasn't very good internet. You know, we had dial-up <laughs> modems. So I couldn't really, you know, entertain myself, like, going into fan forums and stuff or, any, or watch YouTube the way you do now. Uh, so really my only sort of escape to the outer world, <laughs> such as it is, was, uh, you know, through sci-fi and fantasy and uh and through books at tv and movies and the, the you know for whatever reason my group of friends growing up are are i wouldn't call us punk rock because we were pretty nerdy <laughs> but, but but our our form of sort of counterculture was like we would all just read lord of the rings together <laughs> or, or dune and yeah. then just talk about it on the playground and like wow. oh, what you know could the predator defeat uh, the terminator you know like, and that yeah. was like our like how we hung out, you know, and uh, and we basically kept the local blockbuster permanently rented out of every science fiction or fantasy movie mm -hmm. that was available. And then every Saturday, like uh, clockwork, um, the, the, our local affiliate of WGN out of Chicago would air like a Saturday movie matinee that was almost always like a science fiction or fantasy film. And so I get to see all kinds of films that are way younger than I probably should have been. <laughs> I saw Heavily, they were all heavily entered for TV, but I didn't care. Uh, but I, I got the gist of it. 
Um, you know, so I got to see like aliens when I was like six. When it came on TV, I run my friends. Like shut the door. Yeah, it's yeah. And but it was amazing because James Cameron was incredible. Oh, and, and, you know, and what an what an amazing sort of entry into that universe. Mm. Um, and and uh, also got to see. A lot of great sci-fi films I probably would have not seen at that age, like Enemy Mine. Yes, yeah, that, yes. that one had a really profound classic for whatever reason. He did just and talk about Star Trek uh, stories. Like that's I feel like that was just Darmok made into a feature film. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and then of course Star Trek was a huge influence on me. You know, probably this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but literally one of my earliest memories is like a sentient human being was sitting on the couch with my dad and there was a palpable excitement in the air. I was probably feeding off my dad's energy and I was watching the, the, the saucer separate from the secondary hall when the Star Trek fan bail was playing. And I realized years later, I was watching the premiere of Next Generation live way back in September of 1987. Yeah, um, yeah. I was there. And that was at a bet, you know, <laughs> like all the Star Trek fans were like, finally, it's back. And my dad was a huge TOS fan. I think he was very much one of those people that got into it in college, you know, watching on reruns and stuff. Um, and I, I, so TNG was my gateway, but then also when I was very young, uh, uh, you know, both my parents worked, so they would have me uh, stay at my aunt's house. And she also, you know, worked or had chores to do sometimes. So they would just plop me down. And our local PBS affiliate, I think, would sometimes air uh, the original series reruns during the afternoons, uh, just kind of fill time. And uh, so it was, I got to watch all those, all those episodes. I didn't know what was going on half the time, but I was like fascinated by it. Um, and you know, that, that people saw before Prodigy came out, uh, you know, people always had asked me like, well, how do I, how do I start watching Star Trek? And, and I'd be like, well, you could do it the way I did it. Just watch like a hundred episodes, just absorb it by the sepsis. Yeah. Um, and that was that was kind of my journey, and and then of course with uh, Deep Space Nine sort of coming out, like I I didn't immediately jump on the Deep Space Nine bandwagon. I I was just mostly a TG guy, but then um, after a year or two, they started airing the reruns of them every day. That as soon as I got off school, and so I come home and just basically got to binge watch Deep Space Nine uh, at a time when they didn't even have a word for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, I remember a lot of the early quote-unquote criticisms to do this time. It's like, oh, we have to wait a week for the next story, and it's a continuous serialized story. How are we going to follow that? And, I'm, and I just missed all of that because I'm like, mm -hmm. I just watch every episode every day, and I'm like, this is one of the greatest shows ever made. What are you talking about? I know, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, it was just kind of everywhere, and I, I never got any pushback or anyone. I never was just like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's just talk about that. Let's read that together. Let's watch that. Um, and yeah, I never, and I, I, it's hard for me to picture a world where, or my life at least without science fiction fantasy in that way. It's always just been a thing that, that kind of was a gateway to other new ideas and possibilities. Okay. Yeah. That was the same with me. And I was like, I was with you on that. I think we got some similar things because I, I'm, I'm originally from Kentucky and so we live real far out and there was a pasture a pasture on one side of cows and then the other side was you know corn so um so you had to use your imagination plus what you could get on tv and so for us because we lived so far out you know 
TV and movies, that was our thing. That was our family thing. On Friday night, you know, or Saturday, uh, we picked up some movies in town and brought it back and watched it on, you know, VHX and uh, uh, VCR, sorry. And then, um, you know, V, you know, back then you had your miniseries happening, uh, sci-fi shows. And so we would all sit and wait, you know, for three days watching this miniseries, you know, couldn't wait to see what this baby was going to look like that came out of her. Um, so uh, all of that really in- inspired me. And I was talking to my dad about that. He came to our uh, movie premiere the other night and he's like, man, son, you know, do you got all this writing and everything i'm proud of you and i was like dad it's you know it goes back to you guys you know because we watched a lot of movies and you uh didn't just keep it at one genre we've watched the classics you know we, um all of it westerns and all those different things so um yeah most most definitely inspired me now you both uh Another thing you have in common is you are both kind of the deep experts in the worlds that you are writing. Because Aaron, I've heard, seen several interviews where they talk about you as the sort of resident Star Trek geek in the writers' room for Prodigy, and of course, Demetrius, you built your world, so you know the things about it. How do you work in a world where you know so much, and you're maybe working with artists who are coming into it fresh and balancing that respect for canon and consistency with finding some new ideas? And, and making sure it stays fresh and uh, expands. I, I mean, it is, it, it's, it's a delicate dance, I would say, because, you know, you don't want to stifle the people you're working with to not come up with new ideas. It's, that is so deeply antithetical to what I think Star Trek, but then also what science fiction in general is about. Is it, it's it's science fiction and Star Trek both are always about recontextualizing and going back and rethinking our assumptions and pushing the boundaries beyond what we assume is normal. And so even though like I have all this stuff rattling around in my head of how Facebook compensators work and yeah, <laughs> like I, I always try to think outside the box, like, well, what possibilities does that open up? And I, I do want to clarify that I was not the only Star Trek fan of the room. Uh, of the writers' room, we had some other really hardcore Star Trek fans. You know, the other biggest ones, at least in season one, were probably the Benson sisters, who come from. Uh, uh, they wrote like Green Arrow, but also wrote on the One Hundred. And uh, you know, and Shauna especially kind of gave me a rub for my money, but Julie does too. <laughs> and so, uh, but we also had other people in the writers' room that uh, you know maybe just had like their favorite series. You know, they, like they, you know Lisa Schultz Boyd was a very but and seen every episode of Voyager and knew it, you know, back in Suburstum. Um, you know, Chad Watt, you know, was a big TNG guy. Um, or maybe some a couple of writers that like had seen all the movies and then a, a handful of the best of episodes. So having that perspective, especially in a show like ours, which is ostensibly trying to draw new people in and say, here's a way, like our characters, you can kind of learn about the Star Trek universe. You know, it's. It, you do have to kind of have two brains the whole time. It's like, mm. how are, how can we make this interesting for the hardcore Star Trek fans out there like myself? But also, how can you... I, I truly view myself as a diplomat to say, like, hey, Star Trek is awesome, here's why. <laughs> you know? And that that very much was always kind of my entry because of, like, it, maybe a 
in some of the hubris and naivete or whatever, but I'm like, Star Trek is awesome. My job's going to be easy. <laughs> it, um, uh, but then it came down to how do we actually distill that down into its core components and find like, okay, what are we, what topics do we have to cover the, the fundamentals first? And then how, what elements can we add to those to make them feel fresh and new to even, you know, older audiences and, and, you know, the early episodes were very sim sim simple ideas like what's an M-class planet, how do universal translators work. But, you know, what was really interesting working on Prodigy in particular is uh, there are certain things that Star Trek fans take for granted that are never actually laid out that well in Star Trek. Like, for instance, universal translators. Like, there aren't that many episodes that straight down, straight up sit down and say, here's how a universal translator works. And, you know, all these aliens that are talking to each other are actually speaking in their own languages. They're not just speaking in English. And then it's sort of translating that via some sort of brainwave. <laughs> they never say any of that at Star Trek, ever. Because I think maybe even Gene Roddenberry wasn't totally clear on how it works. <laughs> uh, but what's really fun coming in at this point, in this sort of like new wave of Star Trek is like, at this point, we have 50 years of fans that have done the hard work for us, and now I, I'm, I have to just sort, sort sort through sort of what the assumptions are as well as, you know, what, what's actually in the canon and just sort of codify that and say, yeah, this is how they work. Everyone was right. Good job, fans. <laughs> uh, sure, we totally knew that. You guessed what we thought. We, did, you, we didn't just... <laughs> That's what's kind of fun now. It's like... It's like you know, I have my own head cannons, and then I'll, and then I'm like, I just want to, you know, cross all my T's down my eye, make sure I'm not missing anything. And so, like, I'll do my research, and then I'll find, um, like, a, you know, a Reddit thread on the Daystar Institute from like seven years ago that basically lays out the exact same argument I had. And I'm like, well, we can't all be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, you know, that's been, that's certainly a luxury, I think, uh, of, of uh, the Star Trek thing being as robust as it is, is like, it is very much a community. We're all trying to reinforce this story as much as we can. So I, I take it, I, I always try to make sure that anytime we do play with canon, uh, you know, it's something that is plausible. Like, you know, our, 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 and even if we apply something, I always try to make sure that there's an answer for it that's either stated outright in the episode or in other Star Trek episodes or heavily implied that it makes sense. You know, like, are our photon torpedoes warp capable? Well, we've seen them fired at warp, so they must be to a certain degree. Um, and so, yeah, just it's it's always an adventure. But I love that. I'm a, I'm sort of a researcher at art, you know. Uh, so I it, it really does feel like a form of cultural anthropology sometimes, where you know I have a question from either some, somebody in our writers room or. Somebody on staff is like, "How does this work? You know, is, was the Tribble will destroy? Why was it Tribble?" And then, then you know, then I have to, uh, I have to do a deep dive because I usually have an answer, and I'm like, "All right, let me just get a few sources, primary and secondary, to back up my argument." And then, by the end of it, I'll, uh, you know, I'll have learned maybe a little bit before, but more often than not, I'll just reinforce what my instinctual answer is, and I'm like, "Yeah, maybe I do know a lot about Star Trek after all." <laughs> You know, um, and and in cre in creating a, a world now, I kind of see. Now I have five films and animated uh, a pilot and things like that, and now we're to the point where people want to do that deep dive, and so 
I have to lay something out so they are able to learn about these different worlds even more and, um, you know, where these people come from. And, and so that's my next project to do, but it, it's, it's still good because it means people are interested in, uh, my story and the world of, uh, submerge, uh, universe and, uh, they, they want to know more. And so that's actually one of my next projects now now that you talk about that. And it is, as you create it, there's some things you created and you said it, but I didn't write a backstory for that, how that weapon works or uh, how are they getting through these portals. Um, I, I know that the nanites are uh, helping them uh, bring in this power to go through different uh, multi-universes, but... Uh, you know, more detail of that. Uh, so that's my next project to really get deep into that so people can have a, a guide um, as they look at the films. So we've got about 15 minutes left. Folks in the audience, do you have questions? You can either come ask them at the little yellow microphone or I will restate them if you have questions. So let, let me let me restate the question to make sure the mic's caught it. Um, so the question is, you know, uh, Carol's been involved in, in theater and in movies for what we say 40 years. And the sh term showrunner is a little bit newer. So what exactly is a showrunner? Yeah, well, a, a showrunner for better for us is a bit of a nebulous term uh, because a, as I've already stated, it, you know, the television in particular, which is where it usually is applied, um, is a very collaborative medium, but the sh the short answer is a showrunner is some is sort of where the buck stops creatively. You know, like you are sort of the, for better or for worse, making those creative decisions that, that at guiding sort of where the show is going. For instance, like I was a co showrunner co showrunner on uh, Tales of Arcadia's Wizards, uh, which is the third installment of the that that trilogy. Um, and so we would have questions coming from the animation department, uh, from the writer's room. We would also be the ones that answer questions, uh, you know, that the network or the studio had or taking their notes and figuring out how to, how to do them. And then, um, and then implementing them into the, the, um, in, into the show itself as, as we did revisions and so forth. Um, on Star Trek Prodigy, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot more collaborative, I would say. The Hagemans are the, the showrunners because they created the show, but we also have Benny Bond, who is our supervising director and executive producer um, that oversees, uh, you know, sort of the, the visual style and the animation direction. Um, and, and he can also weigh in with creative questions like, you know, I think we're missing a line there. And then I, as a co-executive producer and, you know, co-head writer or an animation, they call it a story editor, um, you know, there is a lot of overlapping duties as well, where if like oftentimes they will say like, oh, um, we have this note, Aaron, can you, uh, you know, write some new dialogue or write a new, a new scene or something? Uh, and then we'll just take a look at it and that, that'll be that, you know, um, so it's, it really is just sort of a chain of command. It's like either you're you're the president or you're the vice president or you're a secretary, <laughs> and then everybody, all the other different uh, departments, kind of filter up to you. Um, but you know that's 
the concept of quote unquote showrunning is becoming a word sort of nebulous because you have other franchises like Marvel, which prefer not to use it at all because they think that, you know, it's so collaborative. It really is just a sort of a, a council of people that run a show. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think any Marvel show is encouraged or ever identified a showrunner of the, of the shows. They have a creator and a head writer, but they also have, you know, and producer and director. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, showrunners is sort of a shorthand that, that has sort of come about as like the creative leads of a project, but uh, its precise meaning remains elusive. <laughs> Other questions? Kevin? So what does the writing process itself look like for, for each of you? Uh, do you want to go for it? Uh, for me, um, I'll... I'll have a thought or I'll, I'll sit down uh, early in the morning and uh, I'll just start writing. And uh, sometimes it just pours out of you and I'm writing. <laughs> and then I go back to look at what it, I just wrote and it's like, oh, okay, I, I love where this is going. Let me tweak this, tweak that. But sometimes I'm just sitting and I'm just writing. Uh, and then sometimes it's just blocks of thought. It's like, Oh, that's a good storyline. Let me start writing that. And uh, I have sheets of different stories that I've written or um, that I would like to, you know, expand on uh, later. Um, so that's kind of my writing process. And then I have an editor that uh, we talk and, and go over things. And so, and then, of course, once you get actors involved, sometimes it changes a little bit more because they bring something to the table you didn't think of or that line didn't really work. I thought it, it worked good on paper, but once they said it and, you know, you kind of see it in action, it's like, huh, I might need to tweak that. So, Yeah, and, and uh, you know, if I'm working on a personal project, my process is very similar to yours, um, you know, where I it is very much just sort of whatever's, whatever's speaking to me that day, I'll kind of dive in. I am sort of unusual in my process compared to them, a lot of other writers I've spoken to where, you know, sometimes writers like to do what's called a, forgive the early warning analogy, but they call it a vomit draft mm -hmm. where they just kind of just try to get everything out on paper. Uh, and then they'll go back and kind of sift through it and try to curvify it and be sure it up. I can't do that. That's really hard for, I like, I need, I tend to be very meticulous on each, like I won't leave a scene until it's at least 95% working. And then I'll move on to the next one. Uh, I know some people that will also just kind of write the scenes that they know are coming up. They, well, they'll write an outline first so they know where the, the story is going. And then then they'll just kind of jump around and write the scenes that interest them that day. I cannot do that. That's how my brain works. <laughs> like, I need to start at the beginning. I And then I usually, if you, it's almost like a, a bell curve or something where, like, it takes me forever to write the first act because I'm so meticulous in setting up all of the springs and the coils and making sure this that works. And then once I get to the second act, then I can just kind of cook with gas because it's just like, I know where I'm going. I've, I know I've set up all this stuff, so I can just have fun. And then I have to try and bring in for a landing, so then it slows down a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's... It, and you just have to kind of figure out what works for you, you know? And, like, whatever gets words on the page is the process that you should probably pursue because you know the biggest advice that uh, i think most writers would agree with is like you won't have anything unless you finish it 
you know, so like find a way to get that beginning, middle and end on paper. You can always go in and rewrite because as they say, writing is rewriting, but, uh, you know, get, get it done. You know, don't, don't second guess yourself or dwell on, oh, is this what I want to do? Maybe I need to scrap it. Do something totally different. You know, sometimes you have to do that, but more often than not, it's just an impatience to have it be done that can be paralyzing. And I think the only way you can get through that is just find a way to get that, get at least a couple pages done. Cause like, even if you're writing a script, you know, most scripts are, if it's a half hour, your script might be 26 pages long. So, um, you know, if you write two pages a day, then you'll have a completed draft in 13 days, like a less than two weeks. You know, if you're writing a novel, if you write two pages a day, you know, if you're trying to get to 200, uh, 200 pages or something, or 250, you'll have a novel done in 100 to 125 days. So it's like less, like a third of a year or so. So mm. if the, the biggest thing is just write and just, you know, find, find whatever process will help you kind of get there. You know, I, I happen to, you know, have ADHD, so I have to kind of wrestle with that sometimes, but it, you know, everybody kind of, you start to understand your brain and, and you find out and how do you even entice yourself to, to get it done. Uh, I find there's a, an, uh, uh, a, uh, a method that I think is called, oh, what is it called? The Pomodoro method that, you know, basically you kind of, you adjust your working time and then your break time and they kind of, you start with large working times and then gradually you go the other way. And it's just a way to kind of reinforce forward momentum until you don't have any more gas in the tank for that day. Mm -hmm. And so I find that's very helpful. So I don't see any more questions in the audience, so I'll ask one wrap-up question. What have you always wanted to get into an episode or a movie or whatever and that you haven't yet found a way to let the characters do? <laughs> I, I mean, I would answer that, but I, I'm still hoping to get them in the end. <laughs> <laughs> that's an unfair question, I guess. Okay, fine. Uh, well, for me, with the live action, um, I want to do more uh, practical makeup and effects and things like that. So that's something I'm looking forward to as we move along, you know, to have just like Star Trek, uh, these uh, different other worlds. Uh, I mean, we've we've done like um, just practical makeup like, but uh, just, you know, with the creature makeup and things like that. That's something I'm looking forward to doing. And then, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> and then also uh, in the animation, uh, expanding out the different characters um, where uh, they'll be in situations where we, uh, again, with the different creatures and worlds we can go to, uh, there's endless possibilities. So I, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I guess um, one thing that I, uh, another project that I've been working on for a little while now, uh, for a couple of years that we're, is, it, it was finally getting into the, the, um, the nitty gritty of it is uh, I always, I've always been a fan of, and I know this is a divisive term, but sort of the steampunk or coal punk sort of aesthetic. And there's a project I'm working on for Legion M right now uh, which is a great fan of the production company uh, called Ghost Manhattan, which is sort of uh, a sort of steampunky, coal punky type story set in the alternate universe 1920s. 
which is another the sort of, I always love alt history and sort of uh, what if type stories. And that's something I'm actually very excited to dive into um, that we're just starting to get into now. Um, just because uh, that's something that I think is a little harder to justify in some of the other stories. Like, is it uh, in Star Trek? I'd, I'd have to have a lot of uh, uh, lot of sweaty writing to try to get to. Hey, we're on a steampunk world in the 1920s. You know, they they can do that in TOS. Maybe, but it's <laughs> um, yeah, we just found a bunch of old costumes in the, in the Warner Brothers department, the Paramount lot. So we're just gonna trot that out as a couple. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so I, I think that's something I'm very excited because I, I do like to kind of explore where science and fantasy meld and then finding some way to sort of plausibly uh, justify it is always really fun to me. So I'm looking forward to that. Great. Well, we are out of time. This has been a really fun conversation. Did I, but you answered that question, right? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying it was fun. It was, I yes. That is ending. <laughs> yes. It's like a good episode. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, and uh, have a great time with the rest of Starbase Indy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indy podcast. For more information about our organization and our upcoming events, check us out at starbaseindy.org. See you on the Starbase.